KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. So when a vaccine does become available, how will health officials in San Diego go about getting it out to the public? A San Diego Health and Human Services Agency spokeswoman told KPBS that development of a countywide vaccine distribution strategy is underway and ongoing. She said local health officials are building their plan by looking at state and federal guidelines published by the California Department of Public Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And both of those documents call on regions like San Diego to identify and estimate the numbers of high-risk populations that may be first in line. Those populations include healthcare workers, people 65 years or older, and those living in congregate settings like nursing homes. Other essential workers might also be considered as some of those who could get the vaccine earlier. San Diego County Health officials Wednesday reported 922 new COVID-19 infections and a dozen deaths yesterday. Wednesday was the eighth consecutive day that more than 600 new coronavirus cases were reported in our county. Yesterday's number was also the second highest single day total reported thus far in the pandemic. The highest was just this past Sunday when 1,087 cases were recorded. Former state legislator Joel Anderson increased his lead yesterday in the race for the second district seat on the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. According to figures from the San Diego County Registrar of Voters, Anderson is now up 291 votes over Poway Mayor Steve Voss. The next update in this tight race is scheduled to be released by 5 p.m. later today. From KPBS, I'm Kinsey Moreland in for Annika Colbert, and you are listening to San Diego News Matters, a daily news podcast made possible by the reporters, editors, and producers in our newsroom. It's Thursday, November 19th. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Okay, so we know this. San Diego County health officials really do not want folks going to work when they're sick. And now the county is taking action to make sure some financial resources are available for those testing positive for COVID-19. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher first pushed for this program that pays working San Diegans to stay home if they've contracted the virus. This is for for low-wage service workers primarily. We're not going to slow the virus if people are afraid to get tested, if if they won't quarantine, if they won't do those types of things, it's going to be an impediment. Uh, And so this seemed an appropriate step to Uh, help people through. 
KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman has more details. This is the second time the county's allocated $2 million to provide stipends to people testing positive for COVID-19. Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says some workers had been reluctant to get tested because they couldn't afford not to go to work. The goal of this program is so that someone's not put in a, in a position of saying, do I, ha- do I continue to go to work because I have to to feed my family? Uh, or do I isolate in order to protect public health? We want everyone to isolate in order to protect public health. 2,400 San Diegans have applied for relief. This week, county supervisors voted to add another $2 million to the program. To be eligible for a one-time $1,000 stipend, people who test positive must be currently employed and not receiving any unemployment benefits or employer paid time off or sick time. The San Diego City Council this week approved a long-awaited housing development on the Riverwalk Golf Course in Mission Valley. Council member Scott Sherman, who represents the area, says San Diego needs a lot more housing. This is one step to producing that enough product where we might actually see prices come down to where average San Diegans can afford to own their own home and start working towards the freedom that that entails. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says the project is also coming with a new trolley station. The idea behind the Riverwalk San Diego project was conceived more than 30 years ago. Developers plan on building 4,300 homes on the site just west of Fashion Valley Mall, as well as retail office space and parks. All that will be anchored by a new stop on the Green Line trolley. Councilmember Scott Sherman, who represents the area, says the project will add badly needed housing in the right place. You know, it's density around transit. It's going to help with climate action. It's to me is an example of the smart growth philosophy that the city has been preaching for quite some time. The project will be built in phases with completion expected in 2035. COVID-19 closures have made after-school programs scarce throughout San Diego. But the Oceanside Boys and Girls Club has kept its doors open to serve kids and families in our community. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne has more. The Oceanside Boys and Girls Club used to welcome 1,400 youth into their facility before getting shut down in March due to COVID-19. Jody Diamond, CEO of the Oceanside Boys and Girls Club, reached out to the youth they served to see how they were coping. What we heard was truly heartbreaking. Uh, They were hungry. And that is when the team came together and said, we've got to do something about it. We can't let our children go hungry. With a commercial kitchen available in their facility, staff began preparing homemade meals to distribute to the community. The emergency food program helped launch their current operation where they assist 200 youth with academic support, virtual learning, and provide daily meals. Okay, so yesterday on Facebook, I was scrolling through, not during work hours, I promise, and I saw a post someone put together that listed all the restaurants in San Diego that have closed down because of COVID. The poster listed over 75 restaurants, and people were actually adding to the list in the comments. Lots of businesses, and not just restaurants, have been struggling to stay open through the pandemic. Today, a story about a business that hasn't even had the chance to open yet, but has already gotten a helping hand. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer has more. Thank you guys. Congratulations. A big surprise for Pink Rose Cafe owner Nadia Zamora after what's been a tough year so far. Her business is still under construction, 
the work delayed by last May's riots in La Mesa and by COVID-19. Today, she received a $5,000 check from Union Bank and a free one-year membership to the La Mesa Chamber of Commerce. You know, my husband and I are very used to not asking for anything, not going, not going to anyone for help, um, doing it on our own and just pushing forward. So, um, you know, to receive anything in return for just the gesture that I did, you know, for being selected. Um, it's very humbling. During the riots, Zamora's business lost over $4,000 in tools and suffered property damage. You know, they broke our windows. They went inside, took some items, um, construction mainly since we were still in construction. And so it was a very devastating time to be. Um, here, but we're, we're pushing forward. After the riots, Zamora helped organize art displays and messages of hope on damaged businesses. And she rallied community members from across La Mesa, uh, families, children, you know, uh, come together and create some art and put it around the fencing around some of the damaged properties and other places in the city, um, and it was inspirational. While Pink Rose Cafe is currently boarded up with art-covered plywood, it still holds the same purpose, creating a safe space specifically geared towards girls and women. Zamora says the cafe is slated to open this upcoming December or January. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. San Diego County is already working on another climate action plan. This time they are hoping they can come up with one that stands up to legal scrutiny. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says there will be a new perspective on the Board of Supervisors after the latest effort flamed out this past summer. San Diego County has already put together four climate action plans, each a spectacular failure. It's just like Groundhog's Day. It has been Groundhog's Day. <laughs> I mean, that we just have to keep revisiting. The climate action campaign's Nicole Capert says the county has been pushed by the state. California law requires all counties to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas they put into the air. But none of the county's previous climate action plans survived legal scrutiny. And they've been defiant, I mean, purely defiant, um, and didn't care what the state law said. And so despite what the court kept saying, like, that's not okay, they just kept doing the same thing. So here we are. Environmental advocates say they've shared their views about what will work with the county, but each final plan failed to include their input. That's always been the crux of the problem. They really had their own game plan in mind, and so they were kind of having perfunctory public process, but they really, at the end of the day, wanted to continue to allow growth in the backcountry, to continue to allow sprawl. And if we're going to continue to sprawl, we can't meet state climate goals. One major issue is vehicle miles travel. That's how the state measures if greenhouse gas emissions are getting airborne. County officials have a general plan that aims to limit increases in vehicle miles traveled by locating new housing near existing services. But the county has approved 14 large developments in rural areas. Let's just stop pretending we can continue to develop the backcountry. Even the state of California has warned the county that those sprawl developments would hurt the state's ability to hit its 2030 goal to roll back greenhouse gas emissions. We need to embrace the climate change is real. Nathan Fletcher is a member of the Board of Supervisors. We need to embrace that we not only have a legal but a moral obligation uh, to have a climate action plan that addresses that. And I believe that early January 
uh, this board will make a definitive statement uh, to that end and, and begin and to implement that change. comments or items to pull. So we do have a motion by Supervisor Jacob, seconded by Supervisor The reason Gaspar for that shift is to tied to the, the election. Calendar. For the first time in years, the Board of Supervisors will have a three to two Democrat majority. Things are changing and it will not be business as usual. Superior Court Judge Timothy Taylor has ruled on a number of climate action plans and housing developments in the county. My hope is that as a board, as we move forward, uh, Judge Taylor won't have anything to do because this county has kept that judge incredibly busy over the course of the last decade, and we've lost every single lawsuit because we've had the wrong approach. That wrong approach has created financial incentives for builders to buy rural land and then seek exceptions to county development rules. If you can take land that is not appropriate to build housing and the general plan does not allow for housing, it has very little value. If you purchase that land for very, very little value and you jam through a general plan amendment, you can reap tremendous financial gain. And so we've fiscalized and incentivized folks to fight for decades to put housing in the wrong place. KPBS reached out to the Building Industry Association several times seeking comment. They did not respond to those inquiries. The trade group has successfully lobbied the board to approve developments that do not follow the general plan because they say those developments will ease a regional housing shortage. But if builders continue to push for housing in the backcountry, environmentalists say they have to compensate for the resulting impacts locally. Developers really need to take a look and see how they can offset all of these problems. The local Sierra Club's Richard Miller says if developments cause more greenhouse gas emissions, the people who build those projects should be responsible for balancing the scales. By doing some very simple things like adding solar, possibly preserving the land that's around them, building electrification. So there are ways that they can reach a net zero on a lot of buildings. Meanwhile, county staff are looking to build a climate action plan that will finally be resilient to legal challenges that includes discussions with environmentalists. KBBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And coming up, hate crimes are up across the country. We check in on San Diego's numbers after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. A report released by the FBI this week showed hate crimes in 2019 rose to the highest level in more than a decade. There were 51 murders motivated by hate that the FBI reported including 22 people killed in the El Paso Walmart shooting in which the suspect said he targeted Mexicans. Deputy District Attorney Leonard Trin, the lead hate crimes prosecutor in San Diego County, joined KPBS's Midday Edition host Mark Sauer to put a local focus on this phenomenon. The incidence of hate crimes is increasing across the United States. What is the case here in San Diego? Is the county seeing more hate crimes this year? Yeah, we actually, the last two years, have seen a, a pretty marked increase in hate crimes that are committed. Um, in 2016 and 2017, the number of cases that were prosecuted by our office were 
uh, around 14, 13 uh, per year. But the last two years, uh, we prosecuted 30 hate crimes in each of those uh, years. And uh, we all have kind of a general idea of what a hate crime is, but what makes a crime a hate crime legally? When we look at hate crimes, what we're looking for is the motivation for why that crime is committed. And if that motivation is uh, based on a bias against the victim's uh, race, ethnicity, or nationality, their sexual orientation, their religion, their gender, or their disability, that's what qualifies it as a hate crime in California. And uh, is it uh, difficult to get the evidence and prove these types of crimes compared with other crimes? It's, uh, it sounds like it's a challenge. Yeah. So when, whenever we talk about motive, we're, we're trying to get into the head of, of the person who's committing the crime. And so uh, oftentimes the only evidence that we have is what they say uh, while they're committing the crime. If there's a use of a slur of some kind, that's some indication. Uh, obviously, if we have uh, access to uh, social media or uh, electronic evidence that can also show that, that it was bias motivated, that tends to be helpful. But if the, if the offender doesn't say anything uh, during the course of the assault, then we don't have any indication that, that something is a hate crime. Now, what kinds of uh, crimes do we see here most often? The shooting at the Poway Synagogue in April 2019 was notorious, of course, but what about some that don't make such big news? Yeah, most of them do tend to be um, assaultive in nature or at least threatening in nature. So, um, you know, throwing a punch at someone, um, brandishing a weapon, uh, or verbally threatening, threatening to kill someone. Those are kind of the classic uh, hate crimes that we see. We do see a fair amount of property crimes as well. Uh, so vandalisms, um, mostly uh, like graffiti type things where um, hateful messages are spray painted on churches and or schools uh, that are meant to intimidate uh, either people attending the houses of worship or, or the schools. And now who's committing these crimes? Are they groups? Are they individuals? Are terribly organized? Yeah. Or not. At least from what we've seen in, in San Diego, they do tend to be committed by, uh, by solo people who, who may have some uh, interactions with other hate groups uh, on social media platforms, but there doesn't appear to be any coordination or anything like that. And San Diego County is home to at least seven hate groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center's 2018 map of such groups. Uh, which groups are operating here? Well, the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, like you said, highlighted uh, uh, seven different groups, Mountain Minutemen, uh, the Realist uh, Report, Mass Resistance, um, American Identity Movement, which used to be Identity Europa, uh, has been around as well. Um, and so those are some of the ones that have been identified uh, by SPLC. And does this ebb and flow over time? I'm, I'm reminded of... Uh, of uh, Tom Metzger, who was uh, who died recently, his, his obituary made natural, national news. And of course, he was a white supremacist out in East County and was operating for a long time. Uh, do you see this kind of ebb and flow over time? Yeah, they, they do. Um, you know, sometimes groups change names, like, like the uh, American Identity Movement. Um, sometimes they change names, sometimes they merge with other groups. Um, but they do sort of ebb and flow as far as their activity uh, and, and the types of um, recruitment efforts that they, that they take uh, to try to get new members. Now, the group Defend East County was in the news during the election season. And are there groups that you monitor and to kind of keep an eye on or uh, 
uh, and they don't really cross the line, it, it might get tricky there, it seems to me, as a layperson. Yeah, so there are always groups that we pay attention to. Just because you're a member of one of those groups doesn't mean that you're automatically, every crime that you commit is going to be hate crime. We still have to develop evidence that's tied to that specific person and, and what the motivation is for that person when they commit a crime. So just mere membership isn't enough. What we're really looking for are things that that particular person, the suspect, um, what they say, what they do, uh, the types of engagement that they personally have with those groups that, that, that indicate that they're bias motivated. Um, but mere membership by itself, you know, doesn't always mean that the, the crimes that are committed are hate crimes. And I wanted to bring up the political climate. The, the man I referenced earlier killed 22 people at the Walmart in El Paso last year. He was believed to have posted a racist anti-immigrant screed before going to El Paso from his Dallas home to, quote, kill Mexicans. And he was going to defend the country against an invasion, according to authorities. That echoes President Trump's warnings of migrant caravans uh, invading the U.S. ahead of the 2018 elections. How connected is the rise in hate crimes to polarized U.S. politics? When things become normalized or when we see things in the media, um, people tend to adopt those beliefs. And so uh, while it may not be tied to a particular you know, tweet or something that the president says, when more people hear that stuff and they repeat it themselves, it gains some sort of normalcy. And so for someone like Patrick Crucius, um, the, the El Paso shooter, if he's hearing things that are very anti-immigrant in the news, um, he's going to start believing that he's not alone in having those beliefs and uh, start to be emboldened by, by those beliefs and move to action. For example, do we see a rise in hate crimes during the election? We do, actually. Uh, that is one thing that we do see every four years, uh, and it's mostly tied to presidential politics, presidential elections. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different possible, possible explanations for why that, why that is. Politics does tend to be divisive on its own. But then when you have elections, especially national elections, where immigration comes up or, you know, things that really divide us as a country, uh, when they're at the center uh, of, of debates and, and national discourse, it does give rise to especially race-based hate crimes. We see a spike in it every four years, and that's been true in 2016, 2012, 2008, 2004, and beyond. And that was Deputy District Attorney Leonard Trin, the lead hate crimes prosecutor in San Diego County, talking with KPBS Midday Edition host Mark Sauer. You can find more in-depth interviews like this one by finding and subscribing to KPBS Midday Edition on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And that is all for today. Thank you for listening. Annika is back tomorrow. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.